The Athletic. is Straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. On this episode, the under-18s mount the comeback of all comebacks to keep their youth cup dream alive. It's a Blues cruise in yellow for the women as they begin the defence of their FA Cup. And we answer your questions. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight out of Cobham. Here we go then, gang, another metaphorical stroll down Chelsea Way or something. Uh, it's me, Matt Davis-Adams, joined today by two of the Athletics' finest. Liam Toomey's here. Is it transfer deadline day? I hadn't noticed. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of kind of ignoring that because, you know, something will probably happen which will make this show look very dated very quickly. Um, we shall see. Dominic Fifield's also with us. Hi, Dom. Hi, I can't do impressions. Is it an impression? I don't know. <laughs> it was it was part impression of Andy McDowell in in, in four weddings and a funeral, and, and part sort of <laughs> wry paraphrase. <laughs> Were you not swooning, Dom? What I do in my own house is my business. <laughs> <laughs> You might be interested to know that Four Weddings and Your Funerals, my favourite film of all time. Absolutely love it. What did you think of Notting Hill? Dreadful. I mean, don't get me started on um, the other one about Christmas. Love Actually. Oof, my word, that has not aged well. Anyway, we better move on quickly. Uh, we're going to start with the youth cup. <laughs> now Liverpool can break and there's trouble here. Frauendorf, can he get his pass right? He has. It's Cannoneer for 3-0 and that is surely that. Just before the hour, Liverpool put the seal on victory, surely. Is there one more chance for Chelsea? They couldn't, could they? Silco Thomas, options in the middle. Oh, it's rolled in, it's absolutely unbelievable. Tudor Mendelidowu seals one of the greatest comebacks in Youth Cup history. Chelsea were 3-0 down after 70 minutes. They've won it 4-3. That commentator will never make it to the big time. A truly remarkable evening at Liverpool's academy on Saturday where Chelsea faced Liverpool in the FA Youth Cup. Ed Brand's Blues were 3-0 down with 20 minutes to play, only to win 4-3. Sub Tudor Mendelidowu plundered the winner five minutes into stoppage time to stun the home side and set up a quarter-final at home to either Blackpool or Newcastle. Now our friend Sam Parkin was with me for commentary on this one. He joins us now. Um, Sam, it wasn't really a game of two halves, was it? It, it, it felt like Liverpool were lucky to be 3-0 up, Chelsea weren't at their best, and then from 70 minutes onwards, something pretty amazing happened. Yeah, it was it was bizarre really, wasn't it? Because I don't think the Chelsea goalkeeper had too many saves to make, Prince had a go okay. They were just so clinical, Liverpool, when they got in, three brilliantly taken goals. And you know, for the first time this season, they looked so passive, Chelsea, I thought, in the first half, uh, without the ball. Uh, and they didn't muster anything going forward. We were really excited when we saw Lewis Hall and Harvey Vale and, and Jude Soontop Bell almost as a front three in that first half. And it just didn't materialise into chances. So it was a really lacklustre performance. And then, yeah, Ed Brand rolled the, the dice at half time. I thought it was a moment where he went, do you know what? I don't care. We may lose this 5 0. Or there may be an outstanding recovery in the offing and we got the latter. So it was incredible. And obviously those changes, the substitutions in particular, paid dividends hugely. 
Yeah, and we've got to talk about Malik Mothersill, haven't we? Because he was one who, who came on at half-time and, and just gave Chelsea something that they'd been really lacking in terms of attacking impetus and, and continuing what's been a fabulous season for him. He really looks like a player to keep an eye on. Yeah, really keen on him. Uh, just the energy, really, Matt. The directness that they lacked in the first half. There seemed to be zero width. Williams, the, the lad that just signed from... Um, Derby seemed to be playing more as a left back in the first half I think to negate the threat of Liverpool's two wide players but Mother Seal gave them thrust down the left I thought Silco Thomas equally so down the right hand side and um, yeah Mother Seal came up with another goal slightly fortuitous but I'd be very surprised if Ed Brand can ignore him from the, the start in the next round because he was superb Big result for Ed Brand, wasn't it? Obviously, he can take the credit for the changes that he made at half-time. But to, to have gone out early for a second year in a row, not a great look for, for a team who've been so dominant in this competition in, in recent years. Yeah, you don't want to jump in too quickly, but it feels like the stars may be aligning considering Manchester City are already gone. Liverpool have been very, well, pretty dominant in this this competition the last few seasons. I think they were much fancied to go all the way. So this was a, a huge result and it was interesting. I think we said about five minutes to go in normal time. If there's a nice, healthy chunk of uh, injury time to come here, Chelsea will win this without the need for extra time. Liverpool players were going down with cramp, left, right and centre. Chelsea looked strong and they did have obviously the opportunity or they made a few changes earlier on in the second half and Liverpool didn't. But I thought the fitness told and the momentum just swung hugely in that last 15 minutes. And, you know, there was two amazing opportunities passed up by by Lewis Hall and Jude Soonsuk Bell, if memory serves me right as well. So, you know, there was a lot of chances stacking up. I'm sure they would have got the business done had it gone to extra time. But it was, you know, as good a finish to a game I've seen at any level this season. It was amazing. Sam, super cameo appearance. We'll have you in from the start on Thursday. Speak to you then. Thank you. Uh, that quarterfinal tie against either Blackpool or Newcastle will take place at the end of February. Uh, the women's team were also in FA Cup action this weekend. We'll reflect on their tie next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. shot there wasn't any but she's teed it up for right in who slashes in the third and surely sends Chelsea through to round five Gura right and at the double unselfish play from Frank Kirby here and right and just able to get there before the defenders Aston Villa won Chelsea 3 at the Bank Stadium in Warsaw on Saturday lunchtime. Chelsea beginning the defence of the FA Cup. They only won back in December with a routine victory courtesy of a Guro right and brace and a Panilla harder penalty. Not particularly pretty, but they got the job done. Uh, Wrighton's first goal here, absolutely sensational. Liam, it's important that, that Chelsea pick up wins even if they're not playing at their best because they've got some massive games coming up. We've got the League Cup semi-final on Wednesday night and then back-to-back home matches in the WSL against Manchester City and Arsenal. So it's all about slowly building momentum after such a, a stop-start period over the last couple of months. Well, this is the stage of the season where you don't get any respite, particularly if you've had game after game postponed like, like Chelsea women have had. Um, yeah, it's an it's a it's a murderous run of fixtures, and Chelsea know they've got no 
margin for error, as we talked about on this podcast before. You know, they've got themselves into a position in the WSL where they need to win every week. And so it's probably quite good for them to sort of take that cup mentality into all these games. You know, the the old cliche of every game's a cup final, but they do actually have to win all these games now to, to get where they want to be. And the, the FA Cup's just a point of pride for this group of players among above everything else. You know, having won it last year, you don't want to lose that. Um, and they need to find a way to, to keep the trophies ticking over, you know, having gone out of the Champions League. So it's all about the domestic cups and and the domestic trophy chase and um and yeah they just need to keep winning still on for the treble and a full debut for Alcio Abdelina the Russian who came in over the winter break looked very good on the left side of midfield too uh, elsewhere as regards the women's team Jiso Yun helped South Korea reach the semi-final of the Asian Cup her goal enough to see off Sam Kerr's Australia in Sunday's quarter-final that after South Korea had missed a penalty and Kerr squandered a magnificent chance to put the Matildas ahead uh, Ji and Co faced the Philippines in the semi-final on Thursday in terms of the FA Women's Cup by the way the draw for the fifth round takes place tonight as we record that is Monday the 31st of January and in our Thursday show we'll look back on that League Cup semi-final against Inform Manchester United. So we were going to do Twitter questions on Thursday but there was just too much content from elsewhere so we've held them over until now, let's kick off with Tushar, who says, would like to know what are the current circumstances that are making Aspilicueta consider the Barcelona move? A club legend, he's also a great professional who can help the club transition from the current back line to a new one. Uh, Dom, is he kind of just playing hardball here because he wants a longer contract than Chelsea are prepared to offer him? Or do you think he's genuinely interested in, in moving back to Spain and, and somehow trying to get some wages out of Barcelona? <laughs> I imagine it's a it's a bit of both. I, I, I would have to see what type of what length of contract Barcelona would put on the table. Uh, I think there's an assumption. Liam, correct me if I'm wrong. That that given the his age, that he would probably get 12 months at most at Chelsea. Um, it would certainly be unusual if he if he got longer than that. Barcelona may well be offering him more than more than 12 months. And in fairness, as the as the questioner says about transitioning defenses. Maybe that's a job that he perform at Barcelona as well, in a team that's very much in in transition and and working in a new financial reality. Or at least we thought they were until they started trying to sign Pierre Emerick Aubameyang on loan at three hundred grand a week. Um, I suspect he's he, he's realistic enough to realise that his his opportunities to play regularly at Chelsea will be diminished next season. Really, even even more so probably than this. Uh, you'd like to think that 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 Chelsea would have uh, cover at right wing back um, come the start of next season for for Reece James, um, and even at centre half, where their back line could well be rejuvenated completely. So he's going to play a bit part role. He yes, he would be great to have around the place in terms of his leadership and and the example he will set professionally. But then again, he will be frustrated at not playing. So that it, that sort of counterbalances that and. It really will come down to the length of time and the involvement that he would have in a first team. And if that's more at Barcelona than it is at Chelsea, then he'd be tempted to go there. Much of the reporting on the Espilicueta situation um, is that, you know, the suggestion that he kind of wants a, a two plus one 
and that Chelsea would maybe be prepared to do a one plus one, and that seems to be where the where the disagreement is coming in. I don't know that for a fact, but that's that's what's been reported elsewhere in England and Spain. Um, the way the situation has been explained to me, it does very much look like it's Chelsea or Barcelona. As Piliqueta knows that he's thirty two, and he, he you know he's aware of his mortality as a professional footballer um, in terms of he can see the the sort of the decline years coming um, but he still feels physically as if he's able to play every game and he still wants to play every game that he can um, so I think that's part of this as well of course Reese James's injury has has given him more opportunities to play every three days but that's not guaranteed to be the case from next season onwards particularly if Chelsea go out and get someone like Jules Koundé, um who's very much on the right side of defence whereas Piliqueta plays he he doesn't want to leave Chelsea. Uh, everything I've been told is he's he loves the club. He is you know as much of a club man as John Terry, Gary Cahill, you know any any of these other guys before him. Of course, none of them retired at Chelsea either. Um, but he's he's very settled in in Cobham as well. His family love it in England. He'd happily live in England after retirement. So it would be a big big wrench for him to leave. As much as Barcelona's attractive and. And and of course, you know, he'd settle easily into into Spanish culture. So I think it's going to be a difficult decision for him regardless. What I've been told is that he wants one more meeting with Chelsea um, just to see where every, everything is and trying to gain some final clarity on the situation before he makes his decision. Be interesting, I guess, as well, if Chelsea win the Club World Cup, if that affected his decision, because he would literally have won every single trophy that <laughs> is possible to win uh, with Chelsea during that time. Uh, here's one from Connor who wants to know, how do you think Reese James would do in our new four at the back formation? Would we lose his attacking threat? I guess that, that is a, a risk, Liam, that, that that might be the case, because he's not too far away from coming back, we hear. Yeah, it depends how how your fullbacks operate. You know, if your fullbacks operate like Liverpool's fullbacks, then Reece James would get plenty of opportunity to go forward. I think it it depends on the broader balance of the team, and and part of the reason why Tuchel empowers his his wing backs to effectively be auxiliary forwards is because he knows he has those two sitting midfielders in front of the back three, pretty much always five men behind the ball to guard against counter attacks. When they play the back four, it's not quite like that. And and when we've seen it against Tottenham, um, namely the fullbacks, either Saar or Azpilicueta, have been a bit more conservative, I think, in their positioning. And they've kind of slotted in, slotted in to form a, a central three-man defence when Chelsea don't have the ball. So there would be defensive responsibilities on James in that formation that maybe there wouldn't be as a wing-back. But I still think he would get plenty of opportunities to go forward and Tuchel would find them for him because he is such a difference maker in the final third. You know, he's not quite Trent Alexander-Arnold, but he's super valuable in an attacking sense. And I don't think Tuchel would want to lose that. Uh, Andrew asks, is it sustainable or healthy for a dressing room to drop those who won a Champions League for us in favour of new signings? The Champions League winning front three of Havertz, Werner and Mount have started once together since Porto, whilst Lukaku has been given guaranteed starter status. Would that cause 
resentment. Um, Dom, this speaks to, to something that, that Simon was reporting on last week, that there is a bit of uh, resentment, maybe too strong a word, but discontent amongst the, the Chelsea attackers about how much game time that they're having. But it's natural, isn't it, that Lukaku, who was brought for £100 million as an out-and-out striker, is going to start more often than not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we went through, even even as Chelsea were winning the Champions League last season, it, it, there, was, there was a very obvious deficiency with that team. They didn't score enough goals. And, the, you know, we always go back to the fact that Jorginho was the, the leading scorer, largely from the, well, from the penalty spot, really. Um, so it was an area that needs to strengthen. And competition for places at a club like Chelsea, an elite club, um, competing in, what, six competitions over the course of a season you'd expect them to add to their ranks in the summer and 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 add different options different types of options to to the head coach's roster and that's what they did um i mean there have been extenuating circumstances to a certain extent um for why Havertz and Werner maybe haven't made so much of an impact and i think Liam wrote about it on the athletic this morning uh, in terms specifically with with those two and I mean, I imagine he was pained writing that piece when it came to Kai's um, deficiencies. But um, well, that, 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 you know, Kai Havertz in particular is a young is a young footballer that, that's got plenty of time ahead of him. Timo Werner, most there was there was a groundswell of frustration amongst a lot of the supporters last season that some of the misses and the profligacy that he demonstrated as a Chelsea player. So it's this year has been an attempt to find some kind of balance, and it's been an attempt that's been disrupted by COVID and injuries. Uh, and dips in form, and a player uh, in Lukaku attempting to to find his rhythm back in in a in a league that he hadn't played in for a couple of years. It's it's just been a bit of a mishmash, really. Um, but I didn't I don't know. Did we expect it to be anything different? And as as for I, mean, I don't think I don't think many supporters out there would have been particularly content had Chelsea not added another striker to their ranks over the summer. Let's put it like that. And they, if they were still playing that that front three. That we're in the Champions League final, I suspect that we'd we'd still be having the same debates over profligacy and a and a, a lack of ruthlessness up top. Yeah, it is worth remembering that Chelsea won the Champions League in spite of their attack last season. I mean, those guys all played valuable roles in terms of their movement and their pressing and all of these things, but there was a fundamental lack of a reliable goal scorer. And Chelsea won the Champions League because they were the best defensive team when it mattered most in Europe. Um, and and the Lukaku move was was designed to try and correct that. It clearly hasn't worked up to now. But that 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 that's the problem with with Havertz and and Werner is that neither of them have looked like the solution either so far. So it, it, it's it's hard to see. Tuchel's job is to figure it out, but it's hard to see what direction he goes in from here. Well, this last question is going to link into what we've been talking about and also uh, Liam's latest piece for The Athletic, which asks if there's a way for Chelsea to rescue the Havertz and Werner situation. It's from Darko, but I sort of feel like it actually might be a Liam Burner account. It says, why is Kai all of a sudden out of favour? He was excellent against Spurs in the first leg. And after that, he's barely played. It's not like the attackers are playing that well that he can't get minutes. It's kind of the story of his career, isn't it, Liam, at Chelsea, and that it's been so stop-start. You know, even in that Spurs first leg, he, he scores the goal and then dislocates his finger and has to go off. And it, it just feels like he's never been able to get that run of consistent games together to, get to show us his best form. Yeah, I think Tuchel said he broke his finger um, and, and, it, and he said it looked absolutely 
horrible. Um, of course, you can run on a broken finger, um, but I think that might have played a, a little bit of role a, a role in what's happened since that sort of pain management. And there seems to be a suggestion that Tuchel has also been easing Werner and 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 Havertz back into minutes after their respective COVID infections. I mean, Havertz has had COVID twice <laughs> in, in, amidst all of this as well since he's joined Chelsea and and at least once, you know, pretty pretty seriously in terms of it knocking him back for about a month. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's plenty of mitigation with, with Havertz, as I will be all too willing to cite. Um, <laughs> And he's still too young, and there's too much upside, I think, for for Chelsea to to even consider washing their hands of this situation. But there's no getting away from the fact that it's been hugely disappointing relative to expectations. You know, he he came in being called by some as a generational talent, um, and uh, <laughs> and the price tag the price tag reflected that. That's how he was perceived around Europe. Um, and I, th- I think price tag actually did weigh on him a little bit in that first season, but towards the end, he appeared to be getting into some real rhythm and culminating in that Champions League final. And that's why this season, I think, has been the most dispiriting of all because you would have expected him to to kick on and really have a big year, and partly due to circumstance and partly due to just not playing well enough, um, it hasn't happened yet. Dispiriting is a good word, Don, but I, I feel like there's more hope with Havertz than Werner. You sort of think we've seen as good as Timo Werner can play and he's got great aspects to his game, but goal scoring doesn't appear to be one of them. Whereas with Havertz, it, it's a frustration that you feel like his potential's not been unlocked yet, but there's more to come. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, 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 I act the fool whenever it comes to Kai Havertz just to wind Liam up, but I mean, it's clear <laughs> he's he's there is a talent there. Uh, and there's vast potential as well. It's it's just a matter of of bringing that out properly. And and yeah, the circumstances haven't always worked in his favour. And um, it's it's been a difficult couple of years for for him, um, even with a, a winning goal in the in the Champions League final thrown in. Um, yeah, with with Timo, I think there's there's more obviously more to him, his game and what he offers Chelsea than say a. Michi Batshuayi does, but you, you do worry that he might be going down a similar road to Batshuayi because it'd be hard to to contemplate unless unless a club is well. I mean, matching the wage that Chelsea are paying him, for example. I mean, it's going back to the Bundesliga won't be easy. I know he's always linked with Borussia Dortmund when they when they eventually get round to selling Haaland and replacing him, but but the wage capacity is. Will be vast. He'll have to. He'll have to. He'll, he will command a massive salary on the back of his time at Chelsea, even if it hasn't been a roaring success at Stamford Bridge. Um, so it's an awkward one. It's a, it's a very awkward one. But you, you sort of look at him and think maybe at the end of this season it might be a time for him to consider where he wants to, what he wants to do and what he wants to achieve and whether he can achieve that at, at Chelsea because he, I don't think he's ever going to be the main man. He's never going to be the main forward around whom Chelsea build a team. Um, that message was probably loud and clear last summer when they went and spent 100 million pounds on Lukaku. Um, he's a he's a different kind of forward to throw in off the bench, possibly. But is that going to sate him? I probably I wouldn't have thought so. I think he'll, he'd want to he'd, he'd want to be doing what he did at RB Leipzig before coming to Chelsea and scoring 20 goals plus and being a regular a regular player in in a team. 
Um, there, there will be other Premier League clubs that will look at him, I'm sure, but they wouldn't be at the elite, elite level that Chelsea perform at. Um, and it, so it's then a matter of whether he would, you know, put up with a slight drop down the the scale. But it's an awkward situation, and it's, I guess, that's what happens when you you're an elite club. You spend fifty million pounds on a player, and it doesn't quite work. So that's kind of transfer chat. We're recording on deadline day in the morning. One of the perils of podcasting on this day is that we might be made to look foolish, but it doesn't look like there's much movement going on other than Liam Tino Angerin to Huddersfield. Uh, only started three games for Lokomotiv Moscow. They had an option to buy. Has all that gone up in smoke now Ralph Rannick's left? Yeah, a classic case of, you know, the best laid plans being completely torpedoed by something, by an unforeseeable event. Um, I mean, Angerin had kind of, you know, he'd worked his way to fitness. He he was getting his feet under the table for Lokomotiv. He scored a great goal in the Europa League. He, he was starting to look good for them. Um, then he broke a metatarsal, which <laughs> has has kind of been a bit of a theme for Andrew throughout his youth career, just getting injuries at bad times that, that have set him back a little bit. And and then Rangnick got the offer from Manchester United and, and jumped ship. And he was the reason that Andrew went to Moscow. You know, he, he was the one who convinced Andrew that this seemingly random move um, made the most footballing sense because... There was this big project that Andrew was going to be a central part of, and and Locomotive had this option to buy, which they were going to activate in January, and they saw him as a talent comparable to to Kevin De Bruyne, and you know they unretired the number ten shirt for him. You know, it, there were all of these big things, but they were all founded on Rangnick being there to oversee it all, and the moment he was gone, it all just disintegrated, and 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 you know Andrew was already back at Chelsea rehabbing his injury and I think in in light of all that there was there was no real desire um to go back to Russia understandably so to a very different set of circumstances so they were exploring their options Southampton were interested in buying him and and Andrew is a South Coast boy um so I'm sure that offer had some appeal as well especially when you see what they've done with Tino Liveramento and Armando Brogia they couldn't have loaned him of course because they've already got Breuer sorry it's Breuer isn't it producer Lucy um so it would have had to have been a permanent deal um Chelsea were, didn't really want that despite agreeing to the buy option with Locomotive six months ago they they wanted to loan Andrew out and revisit his situation in the summer he's contracted to 2025 so there's no massive rush the key is just to get get some minutes into him get some proper rhythm and I think if he has six good months in the championship for a team in Huddersfield who've done brilliantly helping Levi Colwell to develop and are in the playoff chase. If he has six good months there, I think he, he could be looked at by clubs around England and in Europe um, very differently as more than potential as, as something very real right now because he's a huge, huge talent. Um, so now it's up to him. It's also up to a bit of good luck with his body. And I wish him well because he's had a, he's had a tough time of it with injuries. Yeah, that's always been the the big issue for him all throughout his development. But there's no sterner test than playing twice a week in the brutality that is the championship. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on that. Uh, again, as we record, this hasn't been confirmed, but it looks very likely that Frank Lampard's going to be the Everton manager. Reports saying that he wanted to take Anthony Barry as part of his staff, but that now appears not to be on the cards, although Joe Edwards 
is likely to link up with him. Uh, Don, that, it, it seems quite significant that Chelsea have, have kept hold of Barry. We've spoken on, on the podcast before about his importance to, to Thomas Tuchel's coaching setup. Are you surprised that he he's decided against what would presumably be a little bit of a step up in terms of position? Would he have been Lampard's number two and going back home to you know the area where he's from? Maybe he's waiting for a, a job of his own, a managerial position. I don't know whether he would have considered that a a move up. To be honest, a promotion. It, it, look, it, it may be it may have been entitled had he been appointed Frank Lampard's number two. Uh, incidentally, they look as if they've they've got Paul Clement now, who's another ex Chelsea assistant manager. He, he was looking forward last night to to his first day of training with Frank Lampard on on Monday. So um, that's uh, that's quite an interesting appointment as well because he's he's been he's a good coach, very very good coach and. Um, and obviously has got some managerial experience himself. Um, when it comes to Barry, I, I I get the impression, and anyone who watches Chelsea and you know will be aware that Anthony Barry is a very very visible presence on the touchline. He's he's often obviously at every set play he's up on his feet, dictating what, reminding people what they should be doing because that's that's his you know that's his area of expertise within the coaching staff. Um, but but he's. He's clearly integral to to what Tuchel has implemented, and okay, Tuchel has got two assistant managers or assistant head coaches um, who he's he brought with him, but Barry seems to be very much in there, and that quartet are the are the core of of Chelsea's coaching staff, and I suspect that the chance to work at a club alongside someone like Tuchel learning from him every day, playing in all these different competitions and potentially winning silverware in all these competitions is probably slightly more appealing than, than, than going into what is initially a relegation struggle at Everton. Okay. At a club that is underachieving and should, you know, should logically speaking, clamber clear of trouble. Um, And I think it's, I think it may well be his, his childhood club. I think he supported them as a, as a kid, I think I might say that I've probably offended the Barry family horrendously there. <laughs> if they're Liverpudlians, apologies. Uh, but I've got a funny feeling they're Evertonians, and that, that will have been a, a pull, definitely. But but I think there's 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 more to be gained at staying at Chelsea within that core group of of coaches under Tuchel than, than going there for what is a risky job. I mean, Everton is such a volatile club, as we spoke about on the pod last week. We don't know which way it's going. Wish wish Frank Lampard. Best of luck up there because it's it's not going to be easy, um, but it's a it's the biggest test. I think it's the biggest test of his managerial career to date by some distance because with nineteen points on the board, Everton and Everton who just don't play second tier football. I mean, he's got to steer them well clear of trouble. Um, so it's a big ask. He's got a nice first three, well not nice, but a significant first three Premier League games which should give him the opportunity to do that. Newcastle away, Leeds at home, then Southampton away before it gets tougher with games against City, Spurs and Wolves. So Barry not joining Bad Vibes FC, but Joe Edwards, it looks as though, is Liam. A bit of a shame to, to lose him, a really significant figure, in, certainly in terms of the academy sides with, with his work on his own and, and with Jody Morris, but, but that kind of link from one building to the other at Cobham. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the biggest shame of it is that he was the one who was most visibly inhabiting that that role and kind of symbolizing the the pathway um from from the academy to the first team building. 
But I mean, Joe Edwards has been, you know, developing towards towards this point. He worked his way up to the to the stage where he considered himself, you know, a first team level coach. And Frank Lampard considered him a first team level coach and made him part of his staff when he came to Chelsea. And it's understandable that he wants to continue that. You know, he he wasn't, as Dom describes, you know, he wasn't in that sort of inner circle of Tuchel staff. Um, so it makes perfect sense that he would want a position of greater responsibility somewhere else um, with someone that he, he knows and, and trusts implicitly. So, yeah, wish him all the best um, up at Everton. I'm sure, you know, the door is always open for him if he ever wanted to come back to Chelsea just because his his links to the club at every level are so deep. But now's the time to to try and build his career on Merseyside. You wouldn't be surprised to see him back at some point. He's only 35 years old. Uh, right, before we go, let's see what the chaps have been working on for Athletic subscribers to enjoy. Liam, tell us a bit more about this piece on uh, on Werner and Havertz, please. Yeah, so it's basically sort of taking a step back and, and, and looking after 18 months at the the expectations of what Werner and Havertz were, were, were supposed to provide Chelsea with. Um, kind of set out in the intro by those Marina Granovskaya quotes that I that I hunted down from Chelsea's official announcements versus what's actually happened. Um, and I think, you know, yes, there was that great moment in Porto. They both played key roles in, in that decisive goal against Manchester City. But that moment and that triumph has been a saving grace rather than a crowning achievement, which, which is kind of a, a big surprise. I think no Chelsea fan expected them to be as kind of inconsistent and peripheral as they still are at this stage. So it's kind of digging into the way their games have changed at Chelsea, perhaps the ways in which they've struggled and maybe floating a couple of ways that, you know, haven't yet been tried um, that could get the best out of them. How about you, Dom? What's, uh, what's on your agenda this week? Um, there's a profile of Jean-Michel Aulas at Lyon on the on the site at the moment, which involves a bit of Chelsea reference, looking back at the the painstaking and painful negotiations over Michael Essien's move back in 2000 and I want to say 2005, I think that's about right. Um, and yeah, various things around the Africa Cup of Nations semi-finals and, and finals still to come. Yeah, Edouard Mendy involved in those, of course. Uh, right, athletic.com slash Chelsea pod is the place to go to sign up and read everything that the boys write. It's all well worth your time. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll reflect on that Women's League Cup semi-final and look ahead to the visit of Plymouth in the FA Cup fourth round. Until then, from Lucy, from Dom, from Liam and from me, thanks for your company today. We'll speak to you Thursday. The Athletic. <laughs> 